You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. A spectacular one of a kind, a seductive mystery, a Rorschach test for the adventurous eye. achievement which draws together the stories of epic literature, the boundaries of poetry and experimental film, and breaks all molds, furnishing celluloid with new possibilities. Wordlessly recalls the spirit of Samuel Beckett's darkest parables. These visions of suffering give way to equally impassioned images of rebirth. A hallucinatory masterpiece that invades our subconscious and compels us to experience rather than witness. A cinematic force that bears further observation. A metaphysical splatter film. There is no denying marriage's vision or his conviction. Startling, grotesque, and revolutionary. Points of floodlight in those places we choose not to look. Brilliant, unbearable, and unforgettable. An extraordinarily original accomplishment. Makes Eraserhead seem like Ernest Saves Christmas. A triumph of lyrical grotesquerie. You will not forget it. No name. No dialogue. No compromises. No exit. Nobody will get through begotten without being marked. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back in the booth with me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. 
Also with us this week is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Hello. This week we are discussing E. Elias Marriage's Begotten, released in 1990. The film is an experimental narrative. It's about, well, I'm not really sure what it's about, but I hope we're able to come to some sort of consensus by the end of this episode. I can't even say that there are spoilers here, so I'm not sure what we could spoil in this movie if we even tried. Ben and Heather, both of you agreed to be part of this episode, and I have to ask you both why. Heather, I will start with you. Why did you agree to become a part of the Begotten episode? This is the first podcast ever where I've actually been asked, why? (laughs) Why have you chosen this? Why have you agreed to this? Begotten came upon my landscape actually in my teenage years, and I never got to see it in my teenage years, but I knew about it and I'd see like a still from it and be like, man, this looks like this looks nightmarish and beautiful all at the same time. And one of the things I think that always appealed to me with horror as, you know, as a kid and as an adult too is when an artist is able to present you an image that on one hand is completely awful, disgusting, disturbing, but, but do it in a way that's also kind of aesthetically beautiful it's like that ugly beautiful uh combination that's so appealing so i've always i was always very curious about begotten and so when you mentioned like hey i'm doing an episode about it i'm like this is my perfect push to see this movie because a friend of mine william marshall uh had sent it to me and uh along with having his menu music because this film's a little hard to get right now, as, as I think we all know. The menu music was uh, some Genesis Peorage music <laughs> that was done with, um, like, the bone flute. He has, like, this Tibetan bone horn made from a human femur. So, I'll be, <laughs> what perfect music to intro this movie. Um, so, yeah, that's why I was curious. It, it seems I love experimental cinema, and I love things that are aesthetically... Um, you know, their own creature. So that's why I chose it. Also, I was curious to see like what your take on it and what Ben's take could be on it. How about you, Ben? Same question. Yeah, this, I saw this film when I was a teenager. It was when I was living in Vienna and I made friends online with this totally random Austrian guy who was very strange. Marcus Zuber, if you're still out there, reach out and say hi. Lost contact with him almost immediately, which was a shame because he was definitely a weird dude. Uh, he came over and I knew almost nobody in Vienna. I was about, I would have been 17 at the time and he just bought this stack of VHS and we did a triple feature of El Topo, Possession and Begotten <laughs> and completely blew this 17 year old's mind. I'd already been watching well and really messed up stuff by that point, but that would, that's a whole different uh, level. And yeah, I remember putting Begotten on and just being like, Oh, this looks a lot like those Marilyn Manson clips. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's the same guy who did it. I'm like, oh, cool. It's a Club Mandy Christ Superstar as a teen goth. I can't say that I enjoyed it. I think I might have even disliked it at 17, but I have never, ever forgotten it since. And it's always just kind of like hooked itself into the matter of my being and just sat there. And every time it kind of pops up, I kind of giggle a bit and go, <laughs> oh, begotten. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> and so, of course, when I saw it on the list, I was like, begotten, sign me up. Because <laughs> I have not seen it uh, since then. So, you know, 18 years, 17 years um, between viewings. And um, and when I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I actually remember all of this. Like, it was still just sitting there inside of me waiting to be unlocked. So, yeah, I, I feel like it's always been 
I think it was one of the earliest films I would have seen that just nobody else had seen or barely heard of. It was the, like, it was, it was almost, it was one of the few times that I've ever had that a film felt like it was mine and no one else's because it never got released in Australia and uh, very, very unheard of. Um, and you had to be talking about it being like, oh yeah, the guy who did this or the guy who did that, but forgotten was just like, no, unknown. Um, so I think it's just sort of all those kind of aspects just kind of sat with me and, and has made it like a weirdly personal film. And then my own studies over the years have given me a lot clearer understanding of it and interest in religion and such and myths and cultures. So it's, yeah, it's watching the game was like, felt like returning to an old friend. People often say like, oh, you've seen everything, Mike. Oh, you, you must know everything about everything, which is a great compliment, but it's wholly untrue like this movie completely flew under my radar i remember it sitting on the cult video shelf at thomas's uh video here in um well in clausen in michigan and you know it was right at the beginning of the alphabet i saw the cover it looked interesting but i just never checked it out and then i didn't even realize until just recently when i was talking to my friend chris Dashu that this was the same guy who did shadow of the vampire which i tried to watch shadow of the vampire a few years ago i thought it was like the the trailers made it look like it was going to be a comedy wasn't a comedy Pretty much turned it off after about 20 <laughs> minutes. Was not into it. And this movie had just been out there kind of lurking forever until I finally said, I'm going to finally sit down and watch Begotten and talk about it with people who hopefully understand it a little bit better than I do. Because just for folks who are listening at home who have no idea what this movie is, it is a highly experimental narrative. It is all black and white. It is a silent film, though there's a soundtrack to it. And the way that the images are presented, it's like things are lurking in the shadows, and you have to really kind of discern what's going on. Like, thank you, Ben, for sending me a better copy than what I had. The first copy I had just looked like mush kind of on screen. But I, it almost worked a little better for me that way because it was like vaguely human shapes on screen and I kind of had to find where it is. It's like when you look at clouds and you see faces in them or, or shapes, it was kind of like that, like looking at the screen and going, I think that's an arm. I think that's a leg over there. That might be an eyeball. I'm not really sure. So it was like almost like a Rorschach test for the viewing audience, me being the viewing audience. I think it kind of works for this film because it mutates. And I think that's why it stuck with me. Like it did kind of mutate into me. And I think that it can mutate into different forms without it affecting the film as such. So yeah, like a severely digitally degraded version is less easily interpretable, but it's still a hell of an experience. And, you know, I, I wish that I could find that, you know, I saw it on VHS the first time and watching it on VHS is again a different experience with the kind of texture that that gives. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's like, it's the, it, the best way to describe the image is it's disintegrated because that's literally what he did to it in the processes that he designed to, to copy and then blow up and just, just steadily copy and distort and disintegrate until there's no grays. There's no anything. It's just stark, high contrast, black and white, where it's almost just like a field of ants crawling across to create an image. 
Do you guys remember the old Fisher-Price camera that people would end up using called uh, Pixel Vision, where it was shot on a an audio cassette was your medium for that. And it was just, yeah, the, just things barely hanging on. And I've seen some pixel vision things that are just absolutely gorgeous. Some of them where you're like, wow, this looks like almost security footage or something. And this falls somewhere in between because I can tell that there are some gorgeous images in there, but then on either side of it, it's just like, what am I watching? It's, it's very interesting. I think that's part of the impact of this film too, because it's it, it does have this weird line between, like almost like an ink drawing, like a like a German wood cut almost or wood block art, you know, where it's just black and a background and everything's a silhouette. But then there's also that graininess to it, where at times it's almost, you know, like when you see something that degraded, there's always that little fear, at least for me, like this little weird primal fear of like, oh god, I'm going to see something I, I shouldn't see. Like, you know, like there, and that, that was kind of the appeal of watching like old, you know, like, like horror films that have been banned on, you know, third generation bootlegs is that everything looks super dodgy. <laughs> you know? And then you get these, <laughs> these 4K restorations, like, oh, this movie's beautiful. But there's that little part of you, it's like, man, but it was, it was kind of way more intense and fucked up when it was like, when you couldn't quite tell what was going on. To me, I think the thing I loved about this film the most was that, that line, you know, like, cause you have that opening scene where, yeah, you know, this figure who is credited as a god, like, is basically kind of just sort of like real shaky and obviously committing some kind of ha- very drawn out Harry Carey. But even that, like, I, everything is so nebulous in this movie, which I kind of, I kind of love, even though there were times where I felt like it went on a little too long. But there's a beauty of nebulousness. There's a beauty of not giving people the whole enchilada. There's certainly, a, a, I think, some of the greatest film experiences have uh, an aspect of endurance to them, and not necessarily endurance as being punished or tested, but just more than just experiencing uh, in a smooth way where you actually feel like you have had to work to get there. I, have, I went to a, a secret 24-hour film marathon in New Zealand a few years ago, and like 24 hours, but it actually ended up being 25 hours and you don't know what the next film is. So you're just there wanting to know and paying attention. And by the end of it, it really did feel like a religious experience because it was kind of like this film where you just didn't quite know what was coming next. And you, you're feeling completely punished and you're like, I should just like go and make a cup of tea or like lie down or something. But you're still just like, oh, hour 16 or in this case, oh my God, I've only been watching this for 20 minutes. <laughs> but by the time you get to the end, you're like, yeah, okay. Yep, we did it. We did it. <laughs> and you know that there's something very like Arto, like very kind of theater cool cruelty to me about that approach to art, which I, I have a huge soft spot for. I love Arto. And I love films that that sometimes do push you. And I mean, not push you in a way like it's Michael Bay and you're like, Jesus Christ, what did I do to deserve this <laughs> bullshit? But, but push you in a way where you're like, at first you're like, I don't know what's going on. I love this. I hate it. But it makes you think. It makes you feel something. And 
I know like anybody that's had to take a film class or known film theorists, like there's always that first thing with anything experimental is like, what does it mean? We got to, we, it has to mean something. We got to define everything. And I sometimes like approaching art with just being like, no, I'm just, I just want to take this in as purely as possible. I don't, I don't need to justify liking something by being like, well, everything has a meaning. I mean, I think there is meaning here, but maybe there's not. And I'm, I'm kind of fine with that. It's sort of like religion, you know, maybe, maybe something exists, maybe it doesn't, but it's okay. You know, it's all about the journey. It it certainly is with this one. I, I, it's funny because like when you were saying about it being horrific and shocking and there was like so many things that I was reading, it was like, oh my God, you know, it's so visceral and intense and violent and everything like that. And like, I kind of didn't notice that. I like, I just sometimes I'm like, oh, I I really do watch a lot of messed up stuff because I just like, I didn't notice the horrific aspects of this. It just seemed really quite straightforward and simple in, uh, it's sort of, uh, I, I don't even know what the word would be because I, when I went back and rewatched it a bit, bits of it in the last week after watching it in full last week, um, I was like, oh yeah, no, actually that's, that is really horrific what they're doing to that person. But because the image is so disintegrated, it's like I just, I experienced it as, uh, an image, um, one which still does convey information and some shock, but it was so, like there were so many layers um between me and the experience, and it's like that's like like the, the, all of the techniques add all these extra layers to it, and the more layers that are placed between like the original reality and the presented image, the more possibilities it has to take on meaning and I feel like this film takes on meaning in a way that a bandaged wound takes on gangrene, it kind of festers within it and it kind of spills out, and you kind of maybe don't even want to like touch the gangrenous meaning because it's you don't know what it's going to do to you and it's just like it's overwhelming for the audience and it's enveloping and like it just stimulates a response and even if that response is rejection and i think like part of this is kind of like a it like in a way it embraces a mythos of rejection as much as it does one of creation and i think it's like a weird duality of myths of rejection and myths of creation and how that sort of ties into you know sort of like Einstein's and Neubaut and like destroying and creating at the same time. Okay, now you're trying too hard to be my best friend because <laughs> that was beautiful and I love Einstein's and Neubaut so much. <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely like a creation, like a kind of a permutation, I think, of a creation myth and almost like, um, like to me, it's fascinating when something takes, I mean, it could take sort of like old myths and religious teachings and just kind of you know, I mean, a lot of like organized religion is like basically merged other religions together. Mm. Um, in my opinion, I don't want anybody coming for me on that. <laughs> but, <laughs> and so, like, why not do that with art? You know, because it's you know, there's nothing firm. There's not. We're so used to seeing, I think, especially in the West, like Judeo-Christian applications to things. And in, in this universe, it's kind of just it's everything gets its own being, which is cool. Yeah, I, I, one of the other things I was that in trying to sort of like sort of thinking about those kind of dual aspects in it, like um, was really interested and totally unsurprised to discover that Elias E, I just call him E, um, uh, that he was hugely influenced by seeing uh, Night and Fog when he I think he said he was about ten or twelve. Either way, it was way too young to be seeing. Night and fog, and that and that made perfect sense because it's that high contrast images of concentration camps, and just that kind of same kind of impact and effect. 
and you can see that translate in this. But you know, I was digging through some books and I was looking through Amos Bogle's films as subversive art. And Rene said that it described Night and Fog as an essay in human forgetfulness. That is here as well in, in, in Begotten. Cause like in the, in the same section, um, Amos Vogel wrote that, um, in regards to concentration camps, that in the enormity of this one event, many have found the death of God, the end of history, the destruction of the myth of man. And I wonder if like being an armchair psychologist that Begotten is, is, is his, his answer to Night and Fog, where he's trying, He's like literally representing the death of God, but as a creative thing, and that it's not the end of history; it's the start of history, and it's not the destruction of the myth of man. It's the myth of man as destroyer, who in destroying creates. Because you know, as the story, like the you know, the God disembowels himself and births Mother Earth, who in turn you know takes the semen from the corpse of God and births man, and then. This man is carried around and tortured and abused by all these people who I, if I wanted to be really literal, would say is, you know, religions of various varieties and that ultimately they destroy Mother Earth and the man, but their bodies fertilize the ground and more life springs forth. And so it's like, it sort of seems like he's taking those kind of ideas of, of, of relating to Night and Fog and the Holocaust and transforming it into something that doesn't deny horror and doesn't deny death, but yet can still see the how it leads to good things or better things or at least you know hopeful things. There's definitely a Nietzsche bent to this, and I know that Marej has said that uh, he was highly influenced by Nietzsche and Arto. So that those two things coming together in this uh, are right there, and it's. I was reminded in some of those shots of the uh, the villagers, I guess we're going to call them, the, the people that end up torturing this god-child creation. I was reminded a lot of um, The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, which kind of plays into the – that was Murnau, correct? Uh, plays into the uh, Shadow of the Vampire angle, and then also Artaud was actually a, an actor in that, so there was definitely some theater of cruelty aspects to that. Passman Genovac was Carl uh, Theodore Dreyer. Dreyer. But yeah, in those uncomfortable close-ups that they had in Passion of Joan of Arc, are, it's like taking those and getting even closer when it comes to some of the images that we're seeing in Begotten. Actually, Dreyer, um, that's a brilliant brilliant name to note with this because also vam uh vampire i think some of the aesthetic of vampire like i wouldn't be shocked if that film you know was made a big impact on uh on e (laughs) (laughs) mirage am i saying that right mike it it sounded like marriage but just like a little drawn out at least in the interviews that i've i've heard with them i'm gonna i'm gonna blame 1 a.m i'm just gonna get it wrong every time i guarantee it (laughs) That's okay. I, I was saying Barovchek wrong for like four years, Ben. So now we're, we're all this together. <laughs> Have you listened to the uh, the Gomer del Toro commentary for Vampire? No, no, I need to though. That sounds amazing. It's, it's so good. It's on the Eureka Masters of Cinema release, the UK one. And actually, it's, it's really interesting to bring that up because you know, you're absolutely you're so right on the aesthetic. But um, again, that sort of mutative quality because Vampire is like halfway between a silent and a sound. It kind of switches like, diff- you know, it can be either or. But 
one of the things Del Toro says is like he, the way that he first saw Vampire was much like Begotten because it was such hard field to get for a very long time that he first saw it as a projectionist and the print was absolutely just cactus. It was half dead, like shredded and all over the place. And he said it was just perfect. And that's actually the print I saw and I first saw it was, wasn't that bad, but it was in pretty terrible condition. But that just added to the film. It just brought in all these textures and layers, much like with Begotten, and gave it such a kick. And while I can't wait to see the restoration on Blu-ray, it's like I feel like something like Vampire, you haven't, if you're a hardcore film person, you haven't lived until you've seen a really, really fucked up print of Vampire. <laughs> just like you haven't seen a fucked up print of Begotten. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's something I've always wanted to see more companies do, is that with, with all these, which... I mean, granted, as you know, somebody who loves film preservation and is passionate about it, I love having all these restored prints of movies, especially movies that are more on the fringe side of things. But it would it would be kind of cool as a supplement to have, like, okay, here's the really shitty version. Like, here's the VHS dupe of it, or here's the you know, just to because it is a different experience with film seeing. You know, see, I actually had a friend who, like, almost he uh, he preferred seeing bootlegs, like old bootlegs of films that were coming out, because for him it was just a more, it was just a different experience than seeing everything cleaned up. You know, it kind of gave it a little more mystery, a little more, you know, texture to it. Yeah, I've, I've got a friend who would only watch the, like, in the cinema cam bootlegs, because he loved the randomness of it, of the different, like people talking or people getting up and walking out halfway through, or just like the person falling asleep and the camera tilting to the side. And he just, that was what he, but he was part of the fluxus art movement and they were all kind of crazy anyway. So, but yeah, I've, I've got like, I've got a, I'm, I'm a bit of a Italian cannibal nut. And so I've got a heap of like a couple of different versions of Cannibal Holocaust on VHS, like the original Dutch version which was the one that was mostly bootlegged throughout the world and yeah there's there's actually there is a company that is doing something like what you're asking well saying you want there heather um uh, dark force entertainment they've just done a series of um like drive-in cinema double features mm-hmm. and they've done restorations but from like abused prints so they've cleaned them up and color corrected them but they've left all of the scratches and marks and everything on them oh wow and, yeah, and they're like they're you know they're they're films that are available elsewhere in better quality for the most part. But it's like I've watched a couple of them and I've really enjoyed them because they're the kind of film you know they're like like you know some trashy Italian or some like some of uh, Jose Larraz's uh, lesser films. But they're just like yeah, be, to be able to have that and know that no matter how many 4K restorations we have, at least a couple of films we'll be able to show to our kids and be like it was like this, except even more messed up. <laughs> <laughs> So there's definitely, I think there's, and especially going forward, I think there'll be more and more people doing those kind of, you know, trying to save the VHS. Look, I've always saved, even though I love hardware and it's restored Blu-ray version, like the the Richard Stanley's hardware on VHS is just a unique experience on its own because all of those neon colors just bleed out and it just becomes this, it's almost like the color version of Begotten where those images just disintegrate in color. <laughs> Something, something else that struck me watching Begotten, and you guys let me know if you if you think this is this is like a a, a wrong call or anything. But um, there were there were some parts of the film that almost reminded me too of the Viennese actionists, particularly because uh, you know when you have like the the long midsection where you have the you know the son of Mother Earth, flesh of bone, 
flailing in the dirt, flailing in the mud. And it's just like, you know, it's just everything. And because, because of the print and because of the black and white, it's like, it starts looking, it's mud, it's dirt, it could be shit, it could be blood, you know, it's sort of just all of this, just, you know, just the mess of, the mess of earth and the mess of humanity all sort of coagulating together. And I know the actionists who, um, to any of our listeners, if you're not familiar, if, if you've seen the movie Sweet Movie, you've, you've had a little taste of what they did. And then you're probably like, thanks for reminding me of that, Heather. And I'm saying you're welcome. <laughs> so. One of, one of the best films ever, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> there was that. I mean, the cool thing I think about what Mirage has done here, or Mirage, I apologize if you ever listen to this, sir, but um, you can mispronounce my name all you want if it makes it better. <laughs> but like, <laughs> is, um, I, you know, to me, he, there's obvious some influences, but there's also his own film. And that's what you do to me. That's what you do with art. Like where every artist has spiritual godparents and uncles and aunts and everything, but you use that, use all those influences to filter out your own unique, work and um that's definitely begotten you know even if people have a, a a negative reaction to it which i imagine you know many many did and many will you can't say that you've seen anything quite like it and i think you're, you're definitely onto something there with the actionists because uh, you know what a lot of what they were doing were trying to strip society away or off of the the, the individual and and bring them back to a more primal state so yeah we're, we're seeing this being before society has got their hooks into them and started to normalize them and make them human some of the visceral things that are in this movie remind me um and i guess it might be the the black and white and the uh, wordlessness as well there are some times where i'm reminded of a racer head and especially the whole idea of the the giving birth to the monstrous baby and Eraserhead is one of those movies that even though there are beautiful versions of it out there i only have remember seeing that on vhs it's another one of those where it's like no i prefer to watch the vhs version because there are things that are kind of messed up in this movie and they look better on vhs kind of like tales of the gimli hospital it's like i've only seen that one on vhs and that's another it's weird that Gimli was coming out in 88, and that was kind of a throwback to earlier cinema, as was this. And I'm wondering if, like, the late 80s, early 90s, there was something in the air as far as, like, let's go back and embrace the early days of cinema. I think you're right. I mean, especially with it with it being a silent film, you know, because think about it, when a, a lot of, you know, people think of silent film, they... Yeah, what do they think of? They probably just think of like the Keystone Cops <laughs> or something. Something like that. They don't realize that silent, the silent era was very rich in terms of different types of movies, of uh, different tones with films. Also, um, especially early era of silent films, there was tons of experimentation because it was a new format. It was like the wild west of an art form because there weren't really limits because it was new. And, you know, and how exciting is that? You know, and on top of that, like you, you know, in the early eras of cinema, you had people um, ranging from uh, real early on uh, Georges Millet, but even to like, um, was it Jean Genet, like the blood of a poet? That's what mm. I'm thinking. And yeah, you know, and that was in the third. That was early 30s. I mean, a lot of people um, don't realize how rich the early era of cinema was, unless they're like a fellow film nerd. But also, like silent era films did, like there were 
films that did have soundtracks. I mean, obviously, you know, it was something that was either played live with a band or on a, on a record, but there were soundtracks specifically composed for certain films too. So, um, so there's just all these rich layers of early, of early cinema that, um, don't, I think get acknowledged certainly by the mainstream. The fact that also like Mirage would go in to do music video is perfect because early music video was very much the same way. It's, Early music videos were a lot like silent films, so to to the point where some of them would actually crib actual footage from silent films. Like look at the video for "Under Pressure" by Queen and David Boy, right to uh, "Freeze Frame" by Jake Islesby. <laughs> I mean, just a lot of early videos did that. A lot of them also used um, experimental techniques from filmmakers ranging from you know Kenneth Anger to Maya Darren. So Mirage is to me like the perfect God. What a perfect glue for all of this. I noticed in the credits something which ties all this together and actually goes back to your question about his influences because um, I don't know if this, does the name Tom Gunning mean anything to either of you? Tom Gunning gets a thank you in the credits. Um, uh, he's a really significant academic in cinema uh, theory um, and he wrote a lot on transmedia and he's also thanked in the credits for Dinner of Celestial Birds. It's his... Uh, Raj Mahaj, uh, later short film for 2006. But I just grabbed for the, I'll read, um, this is from the Tom Gunning's bio on the University of Chicago website. And I think it'll, it'll explain a lot. Uh, Tom Gunning works on problems of film style and interpretation, film history and film culture. His published work has concentrated on early cinema from its origins to World War One, as well as on the culture of modernity from which cinema arose, relating it to still photography, stage melodrama, magic lantern shows, as well as wider cultural concerns such as the tracking of criminals, the world expositions, and spiritualisms. His concept of the, quote, cinema of attractions has tried to relate the development of cinema to other forces than storytelling, such as new experiences of space and time in modernity and an emerging modern visual culture. As soon as I saw Tom Gunning's name there, I was like, oh, of course, because we did Cinema of Attractions, which is like his really key theory, which is hugely influential, um, which is a lot to do with all of these kind of things and sort of the different kind of attractions throughout modern modern history and how they all tie together in cinema. And it was just like, yep, of course, I reckon he studied under Tom Gunning. I reckon that's why it's in here. And I wonder if that's part of the why it was happening a lot at that time in the 80s, that people like Tom Gunning were starting in in academic theory, they were starting to embrace the the more like older films and alternative transmedia forms and such. I wouldn't be surprised if the rise of VHS also played a part in that too, because now we were suddenly able to see a lot of things that we weren't necessarily able to see before. Like I'll I'll even say like MTV helped expose me to a lot of things that I wasn't aware of. Like I, I remember seeing a really super cut down version of Unchian Andalou on MTV, like a, two minute version of it and then going to see that in a film class and i'm like oh my god this is that movie from mtv it's like okay now things are starting to make sense so it was like this this kind of like a a a sampler version of these classic bits of cinema you know heather you mentioned nasferatu being in uh, in metropolis and all these things being inside of the uh the under pressure video and like that was I think a lot of people's exposure to these bits of cinema, you know, and being able to say now like, Oh, I recognize that from this. And, and now I'm, I'm getting the more of the context of what these pieces were. And I don't think that we would have had that 
in an earlier decade like the 70s, but I think in the 80s is when we started to really, you know, we had the rise of music videos, we had the rise of VHS, we were able to explore those things, and I think uh, that, that the timing was right for that. It's that democratization of culture where you don't have to, you know, live in a big town that has the art house theater or you don't have to, you know, have the money to be able to go to these places or anything. You can just go to your video store and find random stuff or switch on MTV. And it means that so many more people who might have been shut out of the creative process suddenly start to dream and think and go, oh, I can actually make the weird visions that are in my head. Like, I remember in the 90s stumbling upon, in junior high, an issue of Film Threat Video, which was mind-blowing for me at, like, 15 to all of a sudden be like, oh, wow, there's a whole other world of of film that, you know, that is underground and that is made and presented in ways that definitely, you know, you weren't used to seeing. And that ranged from everything from, like, Richard Kern to uh, Hurg Butzgerait and, and Tommy Turner, who I know worked a lot with Pixel Vision. Beth B and all of those filmmakers and um and begotten I think in my head uh, when I think about it right now kind of was in that realm because it's like oh wow you know there's there are always like different ways to do film that just isn't that goes beyond what you're taught or what you observe and that was like the exciting thing about I think that era was it felt like boundaries were being like broken and the cool thing is all of it's kind of rooted back to like old cinema yeah, you know, it's it's like it's very much like a phoenix, which means I think we're due for another like creative revolution <laughs> in the I, in the visual I, arts. I think it is coming back through again because I know it's it's you know it weirdly um, VHS is still <clears throat> helping these pockets of people see a lot of films that have disappeared again. So I, I know I've been just coming up on the ten year anniversary of a little back bar room film night that I've been running uh, yeah, for 10 years now, on and off. Um, and in the last, since I resurrected it about a year and a half ago after a little break, it, we've been doing as much as possible VHS only stuff. And there's just so much stuff out there that, that exploded on VHS and then disappeared again. It's not even on YouTube or if it is, it's in quality that is far, far worse. And so it's like if you have access to a VCR and a reasonable VHS collection, you can start spreading this stuff again and connecting with people. And the amount of films that I've shown that have just blown people's minds because they had no idea that people made films like this at any point in the last 40 years. And, yeah, it's, I think it is – I think that like I've been studying a lot of stuff on Paracinema lately, and I think that this sort of there is a new force coming through that is tapping into a lot more of these stranger, forgotten, underground, alternate aesthetics and fusing them with the mainstream in new, interesting ways. And I think you're you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a really creative explosion where you know the generation that has grown up with YouTube as well as now being looking into those older forms. It's like oh, they're just around the corner for what they're going to create, and I cannot wait. <laughs> Watching this, I was reminded of just a few months ago going down to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, the Movie 8 Film Festival was going on down there. And it was a really hot summer day, and we ducked into a screening where it was just purely experimental films. And it's been a while since I've just sat down and watched experimental works. And 
there are so many different schools of thought when it comes to experimental films. Like you can put it under that huge umbrella, but then you get all of these things going on underneath it. You know, the playing with form, the playing with narrative, the playing with the, you know, the actual mechanics of it. And we watched a whole series of movies that all seem to work with split screen and this whole idea of like, you know, the old camera film where you would flip it once you were done with it you know you would have a 16 millimeter mag and then you would fl- uh, shoot half in eight and the other half in eight and then you would have it cut and then reformed together for your you know your home movies kind of thing so seeing the juxtaposition of the two halves of the the film that was never actually cut uh physically cut it was just like um you know shown now in its raw form it was just you you sit there and you marvel at the the images on screen but then there's this whole like weird thing of human nature where you want to find patterns and you want to to put a narrative on it and even watching begotten i was like taken all the way back to like kuleshov and like if you take two images and you put them right next to each other you're going to try to tell a story and so if people are like oh begotten is completely incomprehensible it's like no i think you just you know no matter what you're going to find a story in it as long as you are engaged with this movie so there's, I don't think, I mean, there are movies that might be incomprehensible, but you're always looking for the meaning. You're always trying to, to tease out that stuff. It kind of reminds me of when I was watching The Color of Pomegranates a few months ago, and it's just like, there's a bigger story here. I'm just not exactly sure what it is, and it's going to take me a long time to tease it out. But I kind of love films like that because it's almost like when you, you know, and of course everything's subjective, but when you feel like you've kind of, like found by the time you think about something you have that little epiphany of like oh wait oh wait i think i see something now you know it's 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 cool it's it's uh it's all part of like the treasure hunt i think of 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 art it's just uh and it makes it a little more rewarding it uh and and it's nice you know you need everybody needs like a rich diet of different foods so you need a rich diet of different arts you know you can enjoy something that's very linear one moment next minute just completely open yourself up to it a wholly different experience that may confuse you. In fact, it should confuse you, but that's, you know, there's rewards with being confused sometimes. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, I remember my first year at university and my first major essay I had to write and I was like so poor. And so I, I was going to use this writing an essay to, as an excuse to import a film that I desperately wanted to see. And so I was like, oh, what, what is the film? Is it, what film is it going to be? And for some reason, the film I was obsessed with seeing was uh, Tulane Blacktop, a Monty Hellman film. And so I imported this DVD and I watched it. And I knew I loved it, but I had absolutely no idea what was going on in it. It just seemed very sparse. And because I was a very dedicated first-year university student, and that didn't last much beyond the first year, but in my first year I was dedicated. And I watched that sucker, I think, eight or nine times across one week. And it was it was number seven. Number seven, I got halfway through it and it clicked. And I was like, oh, my God, I get it. This is incredible. And I came up with this whole huge theory that was all to do with sound and mise-en-scene and all these things. And I still stand by that theory and it's still amazing. But, yeah, it took seven times before my brain went, oh, yeah, I get it now. I see where the narrative is in this film. And, yeah, but it's like 
I wish that I had the spare time to still do that. I like would love to, there's a couple of films where I just want to go and, you know, semi punish myself by just watching it like seven times in a week and seeing what comes out the other end. Yeah, I totally get that. I was uh, on an episode of um, uh, the culture cast earlier this year. They were doing a, a, a Japanese new wave February and watching arrows plus massacre just, twice i was like i want to sit down and watch this every day for a year and just see yeah what what my brain is like afterwards because i know there's so much stuff going on and i just want to tease it out of this movie and it was one of these where i'm like i could just put this up on a wall and have it there all day long and just look up at it and you know consider what's happening and then go back because i don't think that the timeline necessarily affects what's happening in that movie as much uh it's just more the experience of it and it kind of reminds me too you know i was talking about that the experimental stuff um being quote-unquote trapped in a theater can be a whole different experience when it comes to these kind of movies i mean you know we talked earlier uh, about um uh, you know earlier in the the life of the show about um uh celine and julie go boating and having to sit down in a movie theater and watch that movie versus trying to watch it at home on, on tape or whatever, that's a whole different thing too. You know, sitting down in a movie theater and watching some of the early, um, Andy Warhol films, you know, like I never could have survived watching those at home because I would have immediately been looking at anything else other than the screen. But when you're there in a movie theater in the dark and you just have that movie on screen, you have to become engaged with it more than when you're sitting in your living room. And that was the case for a lot of uh, films that I saw in film school, you know, just like, okay, it's me, maybe a couple other people. And then there's this huge image on screen. And I really, you know, I get into that Lacanian regressive state and just watching the, the images on screen and I have to become engaged with it. I remember seeing, um, hour of the furnaces all. Oh God. Oh my God. Yes. I saw that movie too. And like, and it started at like 7 PM in the evening. And I think I had like some like, under the counter cold flu tablets to keep me awake. And it was like, at the beginning, there was about, I think there was only still about a hundred of us. And at the end, it was like 11 of us. We all just looked at each other and just kind of blinked and then quietly walked out. <laughs> Amazing. But exactly that. If I tried to watch that at home, it would have just been like watching a documentary, but experiencing the whole thing on film in a cinema and that endurance test was just like, yep, never going to forget that. Man, I'm so jealous of both of you. Gosh, that's <laughs> <laughs> we're, but, we're pretty we're pretty lucky here in Melbourne. We've got a really vibrant film culture. So we, even though it's, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't really make it here legitimately, it's like the screenings and the avenues do pop up occasionally. <laughs> oh man, see, I yeah, the only experience I've had that I could liken to that, and it was absolutely like bordering on spiritual was uh when i got to see uh on the silver globe uh in new york and it was like the restored print and seeing that in a theater was oh my god it was transcendent it was absolutely transcendent and uh and and mike i think you i think that's such a cool point you know that's um i i think that's kind of i guess that's sort of maybe the trade-off that to be made, I guess, with the whole, you know, with VHS, and of course now we have streaming and Blu-ray, um, we have more availability to those of us, you know, I mean, because I, I live in the South Midwest, 
us where there's not a lot of opportunities to see stuff like this in the theater. And thank God for the home, uh, you know, home video, home streaming experience. But yeah, it's kind of like ain't nothing like the real thing either. <laughs> as far as seeing some of these films in the theater. Yeah, I, I I always refer to the cinema as a sacred space. It's totally wanky, but it's so true. It's it is like going to a church for people who worship it. It's just it's you know you can worship God anywhere, but church is a whole different thing. And uh, it's cinema is just like yeah yeah you still go back there and you go oh yeah that's right this is where it started. Yeah, when I go down to Baltimore and see my friends down there, we usually end up going to quote-unquote film church. So we'll get up early on Sunday and go see a screening at like the Charles Theater. And it's like, you're groggy, you've been out drinking Saturday night, you get up and you go drag yourself to a movie theater and you see something that you normally wouldn't have seen anyway. And it just becomes this whole different experience. I had, there's so much traveling I need to do. <laughs> um well, I know one thing actually I'd like to mention, because um, we, we did touch upon the whole music video thing, is, uh, you know, talk about some of the music videos Mirage himself made. Like, I know, Ben, you alluded to um, the uh, the one he made for Antichrist Superstar, which, thank, thank God for you two, because this thing apparently has never been released on any of Manson's, like, DVDs or VHS. Um, it was really hard to find until somebody uploaded some kind soul uploaded it to uh, YouTube and it's amazing. I thought, God, it was a great video and there's images from begotten in that one, but there's also obviously a lot of stuff that was shot new for the video. And Is that the, um, the cryptitude one. No, no, it's, it's one actually. For the, Superstar. Yeah, yeah. He, did, he did actually do two. He did, mm-hmm. I did, he did one for cryptitude and one for Antichrist Superstar. And I think they both kind of a little bit, the like that partly begotten, partly new mm-hmm. stuff. Well, there, it's funny. Cause when I was watching begotten, um, like my husband Chuck was watching it with me and he, you know, he was a big Manson fan and he kept being like, I feel like this is in a Manson video. <laughs> like, I feel like I've seen some of this before. And, uh, and so, yeah, but he didn't know about the Antichrist superstar video in some circles. It's probably not a popular thing to say, but I mean, with things like that and things, even with some of the films, like Benny talking about how there's a lot of films that are not on DVD and are hard to find. And there's, too many of them that haven't really been preserved properly. Um, things like YouTube and torrents and, you know, and streaming are kind of like kind of a salvation because otherwise mm, a lot of this stuff would languish and um, music videos are definitely kind of a, a form that people never think about in terms of preservation. It's just taken for granted. But I thought those were great. I actually thought his video for Antichrist Superstar was better than some of Manson's like, you know, official videos that got a lot of airplay personally. And I, and I like Manson. I'm not a hater, especially that mm. era. I was reminded a little bit of uh, Mark Romanek's work, uh, especially with like the closer video, like that whole idea of like the, the degraded image, the, the, the flash cuts, those kind of things. Uh, but I like that the Mirage stuff seems like it was repurposing old stuff a lot of times rather than shooting new and so some of those things like the um the 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 drums in line with like the war shots and those kind of things i guess it kind of goes back to to what you're talking about ben with night and fog as far as like the use of those 1940s images was really kind of nice in some of those videos i always love seeing what filmmakers do with the music video format and that this is a great example of that. And on a side note, another great example of that is William Friedkin's video for Laura Branigan's self-control, which is very good. That has, that's complete genre, uh, antonym probably of 
<laughs> Manson, but it's good. And it's William Friedkin, so I'm 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 making a note. I haven't seen that. I'll be looking that up. <laughs> oh god, it's like it's almost like borderline giallo in part. Wait. It's it's really there's a lot of like sort of psychosexual uh subtext going on for a mainstream pop artist in the eighties. It's it's yeah. oh, it's great. I love it. I, I think like uh, collaboration is actually a really interesting point here. Um because collaboration is definitely a big part of Begotten because you know obviously there's there's some pretty big names mentioned in the thank you, like Tom Gunning. Um, Aram Avakian gets uh, a note in the credits as well. He was um, an editor and a director who was quite famous. Um, he's most well known because he was the uh, he was a co-director and editor on the first feature film documentary of a music festival called Jazz on a Summer's Day. That's a weird part of its DNA history. But also, like the all other, the, you know, the credits it says all other life provided by theater of material, one word, no spaces. So that sounds a bit like you know theater of cruelty kind of group. But it's obviously some sort of collective that works in these kind of things. But um, also in the collaboration with uh, with uh, him, it's you know the Manson stuff. And I think Manson that period was at his best because he collaborated with a lot of very very talented artists like. Um, and I'm going to blank on her name, the, the woman who directed The Runaways and directed the Beautiful People clip and did a lot of the, the photography. And obviously, you know, I will still stand by from everything I've heard and I've been listened to it that Antichrist Superstar should be called Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar because that was 100% the two of them working on it together and it's a fantastic collaboration. But then, of course, you know, the collaboration of, um, led to Mahesh working with uh, Nicolas Cage. Um, with Shadow Vampire, um, which I've heard two different versions of that story. One was that uh, Patricia Arquette gave him the video for Christmas, and the other is that Crispin Glover gave him the video for Christmas. So uh, I don't know which one to believe on that. But, yeah, that the, the Nicolas Cage saw a video of Begotten, somebody gave it to him. He's quite a cinephile nerd as well. And he decided that he wanted to work with him and Shadow the Vampire is what they ended up doing together. So I think that maybe that the part of... The reason why, you know, we haven't seen a lot of work by this filmmaker is that he has struggled maybe to find the collaborators that he needs because when your vision is as raw as this, sometimes it's good to just have someone just helping to shape it a little in the right directions. Otherwise, I think he just, maybe his energy just dissipates too much. All right, we're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors and we'll be back right after these messages. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. The premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. I 
I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. All right, we're back and we're talking about Begotten. So I really wanted an interview with E. Elias for this episode, but unfortunately, it's it's like I go out online and I, you know, type in Elias uh, interview and I just like find all of these things, find all these podcasts and stuff. But for whatever reason, he was being a little coy. I talked with him via Facebook Messenger and he was just like, yeah, I don't see the point of doing an, uh, an interview about Begotten until we get the uh, restoration together. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. So <laughs> what a bummer. No <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a bummer. I don't, I don't get that attitude from artists because I'm like, you know, anything that keeps a work of art fresh in people's minds, whether it's through article work or books or podcasts, is a good thing. Like this mm. is, I mean, this this could only be like used as, uh, you know, promotional material when they get that bad boy together. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, it's you, you know, you have something like that that shows that there's still interest in it. Otherwise, everyone goes, well, there's nothing about it online. Why would people be interested? <laughs> yeah. Well, especially when you're dealing with cult cinema, which, I mean, mm. a film like Begotten yeah, has notoriety with us. But, like, you know, there's a lot of people, um, even younger you know, film fans, cineasts, that aren't as familiar with it. So, I mean, every little bit counts. Yeah, and I was like, okay, so when's the restoration happening? When's the Blu-ray coming out? And then I never got a response. So I was like, okay. You know, because I, I was like, I'm willing to move this to 2019 if that makes more sense or whatever, but never got a response. So whatever. So we're doing it now. Fuck it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. <laughs> it's funny. I was I was talking to a, a murder drone filmmaker, does amazing shot on video stuff. I won't say who, but he was really, really nice. Awesome guy. But I did ask him, like, I hope you still have the master tapes and I hope there's like a high res, res restoration coming soon and never got a response to that. So maybe it's just, I don't know. What is, what is it with 80s filmmakers, 80s, 90s filmmakers and not wanting to talk about restorations? <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, though, the one thing that kind of sticks out for me 
in not a good way when it comes to begotten is some of the because he ended up making his own optical printer so there are times where like the the image will move and shift and stuff and it feels like it feels like so much begotten is an organic thing but then when you get those shots sometimes it feels like an it's an inorganic thing because it is it's more of like a almost like a computer controlled kind of area of the film and it reminds me like just a few weeks ago we were talking about um suspiria and i was talking about watching mother of tears in a pan and scan version and just i had forgotten how pan and scan kind of makes me ill to my stomach to see those computer moves across the screen and watching begotten when we get some of those moves um they might not be computer driven but the the optical printer moves i was just like uh this doesn't feel right compared to the rest of this it feels like it's it, it just sticks out a little much so if anything when and if they do a restoration i'm hoping maybe they can calm that down a little bit but that might be you know heresy for me to say like go back and change the original just because it makes me sick to my stomach the gore and the viscera is fine but the you know, the optical printer that's what makes me ill to my stomach uh, as soon as you said that i had horrific flashbacks to the old pan and scan of the good the bad and the ugly when it did that at the big showdown at the ending and yeah i think i i probably near vomited a couple of times watching that pan and scan is the devil it's it's, mm. the, it's, it's not good no that's uh no i noticed that too and I, at first i was just like I just thought, oh, I thought it was just sort of like a a play with like reversing like the speed a little bit, like, and just making making everything seem a little bit more like you know, wait, these are humanoids, but just I don't know, you know, just kind of adding more more sort of suit <laughs> suit to the the proceedings. But um, I think as long as there's no CGI Jawas or anything. I would watch that version. That is wrong. <laughs> I, I hate Star Wars. I'm not saying that because I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm just saying <laughs> I am some sort of cinema masochist, and I would definitely watch that version. <laughs> I, ironically, at one point in my notes, the figures that uh, basically torture uh, Mother Earth's son and then later on rape and kill her, or a sort of version of a mutated rape, I guess, um, I, in my notes, I refer to them as asshole Jawas at one point. I didn't know what else to call them. I was just like, these, these people are mean. <laughs> I didn't write asshole Jawas, but I was reminded a lot of the, uh, the atmosphere video for Joy Division, the one that Anton Corbijn directed. And those were like totally Jawas to me going across the landscape. I am I, never going to be able to look at that video the same <laughs> way again, Mike. And Ben, what were you saying? I'm sorry, sir. Oh, it's okay. I'm, 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 I just say my, I did have one contemporary or more contemporary reference that kind of struck me as sort of I've got a, a weird vibe of Blair Witch Project from it. And I really wouldn't be surprised to find out if those guys were a fan of this because not just like the digital kind of grain aesthetic, but also the, the kind of primal cultish kind of the weirdness that happens at the end felt very begotten like actually in retrospect. Something about the primal response kind of thing of the way they react to the situation um, at the end. Yeah. Did you guys get a chance to watch Din of the Celestial Birds, which they say is kind of a, a sequel uh, to Begotten? I thought that was really gorgeous though as i'm watching it 
like that came out in 2004. And as I'm watching it, I was suddenly thrown back to last summer and watching that eighth episode of uh, Twin Peaks season three. Just that experimental nature of that episode of Twin Peaks really looks like it was, uh, you know, it, it feels like it was swimming in the same pool as Den of Celestial Birds. You know, it's funny you say that because I I still need to finish the third season of Twin Peaks, but I, my, uh, I still need to start it. So don't look at me. <laughs> yeah, but um, but Chuck, he had seen the entire season, and he said, Mike, he said the exact same thing because he at one point he was like, he's like, man, this is so much like episode eight of season three, and he actually. Showed me, he found a part of the episode on YouTube and showed it to me for 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 comparison, and I could definitely see it. it's it's pretty. I wouldn't say blatant, but it's strong. Like there definitely seems to be. I would think it's either an extreme coincidence or there's a definite connection. It, there, it is beautiful. It's almost like because I watched *In a Celestial Birds* immediately after watching *Begotten*, and it it was sort of like the um like a creative after dinner meant. Of the after the entree of Begotten, it's um, there, it's there's a loveliness to it because I, I think with Begotten, and this isn't a criticism at all, but it's like by the time you get to the end where it's like okay, Mother Earth and her son have been have been <clears throat> mutilated, but hey, look, life is coming to the Earth through you know through plants and through nature uh, with the remains. But after you've seen these two get treated the way that they've been treated and just it's it's a lot of abuse it's a lot of you know at one point sexual abuse uh, towards her but you've gone through all of that so by the time it's like oh that's nice there's some plants you know it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> like this world is still horrible like it's it seems a lot more bleak to me totally mm. which i'm again i'm down with i'm fine with that but um, where Dennis Celestial Birds, I think, to, to me, I feel like it sort of took the whole um, rebirth sort of feeling and and kind of explored it more on that end and less on the um, uh, just the uh, the gruesomeness of death and birth and living. The Den of Celestial Birds actually really demonstrates how human Begotten is. Um, and I think maybe that's what the aspect is, because it doesn't – like a Den of Celestial Birds is – cosmic and feels much more spiritual in a in a way that doesn't have anything to do with humans and it makes you realize how much like yeah it's all the human stuff with begotten which is pretty much all of it is the really horrible stuff because humans are really horrible <laughs> quite a bit of the time um, and then this dinner of celestial birds just kind of strips that away and actually you know depending on how you feel about this film you're going to like hate me for this it kind of reminded me of the difference between alien and prometheus where it's like you can tell that prometheus is a film made by a much older man who is looking at the world and time and existence in a much more open and mature way um, and much less concerned perhaps with his own self and his own being and his own fears and it's like, you know, Alien is very human, whereas to me Prometheus is like practically sci-fi planet Earth where it's more about geology and and biology and matter and the humans are inconsequential. And it's like Sin of Delestial, Celestial Birds is just a boiled-down version of that where it just doesn't need to have characters or anything. It's just the movement of things over time. I guess to add on that, it, it, 
the things that I liked about Begotten were, like I was saying, the the organic things. Whereas with Den of Celestial Birds, it's beautiful and everything, but it feels more like it was made in a computer than actually like shot on film. It doesn't feel like we're doing location shooting for Den of Celestial Birds because we are in the cosmos. So it's not like you can throw a camera out there. So I guess it is kind of like alien in that way versus Prometheus where, you know, there's so many CGI shots in Prometheus and you're using much more practical effects in alien. Mm, yeah, that's true. sir. Yeah. But yeah. I thought it was a, a gorgeous thing. And I saw a nice interview with Mirage, uh, that was out there. I'll try to find it and, and throw it, um, on this episode show notes where there are clips from other things. And I'm not exactly sure what they're from. Cause I went back and I watched the music videos and I know he's done other shorts that I wasn't able to track down, but there were some other uh, clips that are in this interview. Where I'm just like, Oh wow, this stuff looks absolutely gorgeous. And I really want to see more of this stuff. Um, I did not have a chance to watch suspect zero, which was his other narrative film. Um, but uh, I'm curious to see it. Uh, it didn't really get a lot of great rev- reviews. I, I, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing when we suddenly think, oh, this experimental filmmaker will fit perfectly into a narrative filmmaker world. I mean, you know, we, we've dropped the name David Lynch several times, and I think that it works for him. But when he gets more experimental, when he gets out there more, that's the stuff I like even more than like a straight ahead narrative. So like when we dive into the underground and we see the bugs fighting in blue velvet, that's a great contrast versus the melodrama, the extreme Douglas Sirk melodrama that he's doing on the surface of blue velvet. But I don't know if Mirage was really given that much of a chance when it comes to his narrative work where it was like, okay, yeah, you're, going to be able to do experimental and narrative and then you really should have a, a good contrast between those two again you know that mirage had uh nicholas cage supporting him on his first dive into narrative and lynch had mel book supporting him on his dive into narrative um and when those supports went away you end up with dune and uh suspect zero and dune is probably a great deal better than suspect zero i i won't comment on Suspect Zero because I, it's been at least 10 years since I saw it. Um, I don't know how I would interpret it now, but at the time it just felt like nothing. Um, and it felt like a nothing that was trying to, you could feel the producers wanting to have something like seven. And then that meeting with just, I don't even know what. It's just very, very bland, and I think I pretty much forgot what happened during, as soon as it, uh, as soon as I'd seen it, which was unfortunate. But I can understand why he decided to go a different way and not try that again. Yeah, I've I've only seen Shadow of the Vampire. I have not I've not seen Suspect Zero, but um, I like Shadow of the Vampire. It's been years. I actually, I don't think I've seen it since early two thousands. But I remember I remember really liking it, liking the performances. Um, I'd almost be curious to go back and at least kind of spot watch it to see, you know, if there's any sort of bleed over style from Begotten. Cause I don't remember it looking like Begotten at all. <laughs> I, I, but I, but I, it's, um, it, it's been years though. I highly recommend going back and watching it and Mike, give it a chance. Cause like I did, they, you read the, the interview in Fangoria where he talks about how the ending originally was meant to be very typical and staking the vampire and happily ever after. 
and instead the ending goes into like snuff film territory um and it's quite you know it's not totally that that's not really a spoiler you can kind of get the gist that it's not going to end well but it's it really it is one of those films i think which does kind of I don't want to say it wobbles because I've seen it a couple of times. It's been at least five or six years since I last watched it, but I just remember the last time I watched it, just knowing where it was going to go, I was much more on board with the first half. And then once it starts to really, like, I don't know, it's it's like it's, it's like it hits ice, but it wants to hit ice. It wants its characters to be slipping and sliding on that ice and the audience to be going along with them so that it can get you ready for that ending, which is just your face slamming, just crunching against the ice and blood going everywhere. And I really, like, I think it's a really, really, truly remarkable film. Um, and it might be why he hasn't done anything else because I think it's, it's actually, you know, not many, not many filmmakers get to make something that powerful and strange and still have something left in them to create and even, a, you know, a shadow of it. Yeah, I'd say go back, give it another chance and be open to it because I think it's, I think it is a film that it's slippery and it can slip out of your hands very easily, much like Begotten. Like it's, it, it, it hides its slipperiness and its endurance-ness more easily because it is a narrative film and it does have big stars and it has all these things but like it sounds like cage really gave him the freedom to be himself within those confines and yeah yeah it's a good one it's a good one all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show in a time of magic and superstition where the supernatural walk the night legend tells of an evil that does not sleep Now, empowered by the secrets of past generations, a small band of heroes will rise to confront their destiny. Experience the adventure. Embrace the darkness. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Mr. Vampire. Not just the one film. We'll be discussing the whole raft of Jiangxi films starring the one and only Lam Ching-Ying. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Ben. Heather, what is the haps with you these days? Well, uh, my article on the Joe Sarno double feature of All the Sins of Sodom and Vibrations was recently just published over at Diabolique. Uh, so please check that out. And I'm also currently working on both an article involving Klosonomi and the Godfathers of Black Metal, Merciful Fate, as well as a separate piece about the wholly underrated Canadian synth art pop band Strange Advance. And when is your encyclopedia coming out? 
the Bizarro Encyclopedia Film Volume One. We we are hoping to get it out by the end of this year for the holidays. Of course, I will be posting about it copiously on uh, on Facebook, on my Twitter, and as well as my Instagram. And Ben, how are things going with you and all your various secret projects these days? Well, I can talk a little bit about the secret project now. Yeah, I went from having not much going on to a thousand miles per hour. So yeah, we've we've had a I've had a pretty amazing opportunity uh, dropped in my lap, and we are creating the Paris Cinema Fest, which will be running before the end of the year. Um, it's completely crazy to try and pull off a festival in the amount of time that we're doing it, but that's Paris Cinema, and we're crazy, so it'll be fine. We've already got an amazing selection of films lined up, which I can't reveal just yet, but uh, yeah, we're kind of taking the term paracinema and that's why it was it was we we booked into to do this begotten session long before i knew about this and yet i've spent the last three week, weeks delving into research that is very much matched up with it and uh yeah kind of taking the term paracinema and looking at what it has been and what it is now what it might be tomorrow and trying to find the films that not only uh, present that and uh, a dialogue with that, but also can dialogue with the audiences to stimulate them and create their own paracinema and make strange new forms and, you know, maybe change a little bit of film culture. So we're, we're aiming pretty high what we can do, but at the very least we've got some really fun, fantastic films lined up. So that's going to be in Melbourne, Australia. So and not a lot of you will be able to get to that, but if you keep an eye out online, Paracinema Fest will be popping up and you can at least follow what we can do and I'll be trying to find time to write some articles and things on some of the films we've got. So there'll be a little bit of info there and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fantastic and we've got a great team working on it and we're all subversive, crazy table flippers so we're looking to do something different and shake things up and yeah, it's going to be it's already super fun and we haven't even gotten to share it with anybody yet. So this is actually the first time I'm allowed to speak publicly about it because we'll be starting to release all the information this week. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be it's a hell of a lot of fun. And I have been completely altering my brainwaves with some pretty incredible films for it. So, and, we, and I, I promised my boss that I wouldn't play anything too terrifying this year that would save that for later years. So, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing online at the moment, but if you, you can follow me at Dissolved Pet on Twitter or Instagram, and uh, I'll be certainly be sharing things on on there. So yeah, check it out, uh, Dissolved Pet. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.